Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Laura Noonan, our US banking editor, Nick McGaw, our retail banking correspondent, and also Rob Smith, our capital markets correspondent. This week, we'll be taking a look at what Deutsche Bank's latest funding round says about the broader bank financing market, a look at the BB&T and SunTrust merger in the US, and whether it heralds a new phase of M&A in banking, and finally look at Lloyd's, which is hiring 700 new financial advisors. First, though, to that bank funding story. Now, Rob, we often talk about capital raising at the banks and how much equity capital banks are required to have by regulators. What we're talking about today is more about funding, that is the financing of their day-to-day lending activities and other investments. And the way in which they go about this is typically through the issuance of bonds as well as the gathering of deposits. Where these two spaces meet in terms of regulatory capital and funding is in the area of so-called bail-inable bonds, dubbed at an international level TLAC, dubbed at a European level MREL, all horrible acronyms, but it basically means that banks, in addition to their own funding needs, have to issue a certain kind of bonds in addition now called MREL, TLAC, bail-inable bonds, which, as well as financing their operations, can be used as backstop capital, in a sense. They can be turned from bonds into equity in a crisis. Now, because of the regulations here, there's going to be a flood. These are new regulations. There's going to be a flood over the next two or three years of issuance of these types of bonds. Some people think that the investor demand isn't there. And therefore, banks maybe are going to have to pay quite high coupons in order to be able to get these issues away. And we're seeing some signs of that of late. And Rob, you were part of our reporting on a very expensive round of funding that Deutsche launched last week. It obviously comes in the wake as well of Unicredit where you broke a story uh, a few weeks ago about the exceptionally high level of funding cost that they had to accept to get away a big financing round. What is going on and why are the jitters so extreme? I think what's going on with regard to Deutsche is people were just amazed by this. It was sort of one of those things where you look at the screen, you see the details of something and you almost can't quite believe what you're seeing. With Unicredit, they paid incredibly high rate for the same type of funding just before the end of last year. More than 7%, right? Yes, it was nearly 8%, in fact. And it was in a trade which pretty much everyone knows PIMCO provided the full $3 billion. So they're paying a premium to get certainty of execution with one of the largest asset managers in the world. But in terms of Deutsche, what I think really took people by surprise was they were raising two-year and three-year funding uh, incredibly high cost. The two-year bond they raised was at 180 basis points over the benchmark. 
I mean, two-year paper from a German bank would typically, in the old world way of thinking, been seen as like risk-free. The fact that there's a you know a real credit risk premium on Deutsche funding for two years is, I think, what really shocked people. Yeah, it does send alarm signals about Deutsche Bank more broadly. Obviously, we do have to be careful here that we're not calling the demise of Deutsche. But what it does tell you is that there's counterparty nervousness around certainly a risk-free loan to this bank. Yeah, certainly. The type of funding they were raising is, in inverted commas, new type of senior debt, which can take some losses. So regulators have been keen to say to people, hey, this stuff is senior, but it can take losses. But the interesting point of that is most other banks, for that reason, try and raise it as a long-term thing. There's no point raising something that's quasi-capital if it keeps rolling over every two years. So people are trying to work out why did Deutsche raise two-year funding at all? It's not really very useful. And it sort of suggests they raised it because they had to raise it. Given the high cost, they almost had to raise two-year debt. And do we have any inkling as to why they felt they did have to raise it? it again, it's a, it's a bit of a mystery because... In terms of Germany, Germany did the legislation on this stuff completely backwards to the rest of Europe. So everywhere else in Europe said, you have your existing senior debt, that's bulletproof. Senior debt, if our listeners aren't aware, is the debt which ranks at the top of a bank's capital stack. So it's basically, if a bank gets into trouble, it's the debt which would be wiped out last. And historically in Europe, Senior debt has never been touched in a bank collapse. It's been seen as a bulletproof type of debt. Now, in Germany, what they did, they said, you're going to raise a new type of senior debt, which will rank below that. We're going to make that bulletproof debt unbulletproof. So all your old senior debt is now at risk. Now, people joke that this was sort of done with Deutsche Bank in mind because telling a bank like Deutsche Bank they have to raise... 30 billion of new funding is a tall ask. But what it does mean is that Deutsche Bank shouldn't be under pressure to raise this type of funding. They've got loads of it. So unlike most other banks in Europe, which have a big quantum to raise over the next two or three years. Exactly. And that's where the contrast comes with Unicredit. Unicredit had to pay that rate because it didn't really have enough of this stuff. In Italy, it's a new thing. It didn't have the luxury of Deutsche Bank of having all of its old debt redesignated this way. So it's a real head-scratcher all round, and it can be read in a lot of different ways, a lot of them not very positive for Deutsche Bank. Let's go over now to Michael Hunsler, who is Credit Portfolio Manager at Asenagon, Asset Manager in Germany. Michael, thanks ever so much for joining us. What's your perspective on this? I think there was generally surprise in the market that Deutsche issued at such a high coupon and questions about why they did that. What's your perspective? Well, first of all, of course, you know, that, that's been kind of eyebrow-raising that Deutsche Bank came with a uh, multi-trend issue in a non, you know, non-preferred space. Actually, you know, also the spread by comparison was quite high and indicates that there has to be a certain premium on these new issues in order to get a deal done, which, of course, is a priority for Deutsche Bank. And looking at the current situation, you know, as much as I, I can see, they are comfortably above the so-called MREL requirement, which means, you know, they have to have in place so-called bail-inable securities, so-called seen or non-preferred, in order to comply with the regulation. So they talk about 21 billion. So there's no 
immediate need to issue. Nevertheless, they also have some maturities in 2019, 16 billion of seen and non-preferred. So there is a certain logic. And of course, you know, it's probably not a bad idea to get this done at the start of the year. Nevertheless, it came as a surprise to me. Do you see this as signaling their concern perhaps about the stability of the markets for the rest of the year? Perhaps more sending a signal on that than actually on Deutsche's own problems, which are obviously being well advertised. It's clearly not systemically concerning problems right now. No one thinks they're running out of liquidity or running out of capital, but they clearly do have some operational challenges. Which do you think it is, the kind of macro or the micro? It's probably more about the broader market situation we are in. Uh, and given that 2018 has been a very difficult year, and in particular the last quarter, you know, the market was more or less shut. So from that perspective, of course, they did anticipate that the windows has been open again and therefore made use of the opportunity. I don't think, you know, it's more specifically towards Deutsche. First of all, on the capital, they are in European context. They have okay sound capital. Also, leverage ratio looks okay. And even so, the last quarter results have been somewhat disappointing on the earnings side. They have been very strict on managing costs. And saving as a CEO gave a bit of an upbeat outlook. And therefore, it's not exactly that Deutsche feels that they might have difficulties in order to issue seen or non-preferred. It's probably more about the market. Okay, and a final word then. What do you see banks doing more broadly, particularly European banks, in terms of this, as you say, MREL, the bail-inable debt issuance? Do you see banks trying to get ahead of things and there being more issuance over the next few weeks? Or will the price that Deutsche had to pay scare other people off? I don't think you know, Deutsche scared people off. I think they made clear that the market is available for them at a certain price, of course, you know, as did Unicredit last year. But last year, the Unicredit issue went to just one investor, as much as I have heard. So in this particular case, you know, again, that was a multi-trench. It was Euro. It was also British pound. And now they came to the market with US dollar, seen a non-preferred. So they're also diversifying their funding sources, which is good. And I think, in general, investors have to accept that there is you know, a flood of seen and non-preferred coming to the market, which does not really help. I mean, most banks have laid out their plans for issuance over the course of 2019, and there's a lot to be expected. But nevertheless, it's not as much as some analysts have outlined before. So it looks to me it's all manageable. Let's hope you're right. Michael Hunzler from Senegon, thank you very much for joining us. Let's move on to our second topic, bank M&A. Laura, you have been looking at a couple of interesting M&A deals in the banking space in the past couple of weeks. Last week, we had a couple of regional banks, very big regional banks, getting together, BB&T and SunTrust. And then this week, Morgan Stanley has done a slightly more quirky acquisition, buying up a share options business, if I understand correctly. But tell us what's going on with both of these deals and what binds them together, I suppose, as a theme. Okay, well, in terms of what binds them together as a theme, it's really that we're seeing a very active M&A market in the US financial space generally at the moment. So these are the two most high profile examples of big banks doing big deals. By far, the bigger of the two deals is the BB&T and SunTrust deal. And that has more implications in terms of what we're going to be seeing in the rest of the year and also what we're going to be seeing in the years ahead. Here we have two of the mid-sized regional banks combining to create America's sixth biggest bank in terms of loans rather than in terms of overall assets. 
If you add the market cap of the two companies together, you get to a figure of 66 billion. So it is the biggest deal we've seen any bank in the US do in the aftermath of the financial crisis. There's been a lot of talk and there's been a number of false dawns, as anyone who's been following this knows. If you look at the mill and the smaller cap banks in the US, there's an awful lot of them. We've got about 5,000 banks, which is far too many for a single country. So there is some expectation that this is going to lead to a renewed wave of conversations, at least because there has been a lot of arguments saying while it might theoretically make sense to combine some of these, it would be far too complex to actually execute and to actually structure a deal that everybody was happy with. BB&T and SunTrust have shown that this is something which is possible. So I think just talking to finance people last week, they were saying this will up the ante in terms of other mid to small size banks where they will see their own shareholders, their own directors pushing them to rethink really harder about if they need to take part in this consolidation What's really driving this, Laura? How much is technology a factor here? Tech, I think, is the main thing which has been driving this because tech is going to be such a big determinant of who wins and loses in the future of US retail banking. If you have a big bank the size of JP Morgan Chase spending billions and billions on technology, it's really hard for some of the very tiny banks to create an offering that's even vaguely capable of competing with that. So they need to band together and be able to invest at scale or to at least have some chance of having something comparable to what the biggest US retail banks are creating. Just a final thought on this deal. To what extent has the pullback from regulatory pressure, particularly the kind of break that has been given to mid-sized and smaller banks in the US in terms of their regulatory burden, played into this? The threshold is higher than maybe some might have previously thought. They can afford to bulk up. Intriguingly, if you talk to bankers who were involved in the deal, they say actually that didn't play a huge role. So looking from the outside, it's quite easy to think, oh, there's a more relaxed attitude by regulators there for game on. They say, no, in fact, this was all about the financial picture and not about the regulatory block. They say that this deal would never have fallen into the too big to fail category we were conscious of because they're effectively putting two retail banks together to create a bigger retail bank. It's a very different thing from actually going and trying to create the next Goldman Sachs. They aren't making the banks any riskier. So they say that they would never have faced opposition from regulators. What they do say is that it's more about the bank's financial situation stabilising than it is about any regulatory block on doing it. A final word then on the other deal that we've seen in the last couple of days, Morgan Stanley, a quirky little acquisition. Tell us about that and what's going on. Yes, yeah, so Morgan Stanley are paying $900 million to acquire Solium. Now, Solium is a company which helps employees of some of these big US tech firms a lot of the client base would be in the highly coveted millennial space and they basically help them to manage their stock option plans. So there are two aspects to it. The first is that they literally take over the current Solium business managing those plans. The kind of hope and the expectation would be that they can also convert some of those people to clients of other parts of the bigger Morgan Stanley business. Now, this is the single biggest acquisition in financial terms for Morgan Stanley since the crisis, but it's not seen as being overly significant in that it is very much a bolt-on acquisition. Morgan Stanley is a bank which has a $69 billion market cap. This is going to be a $900 million acquisition, so it's not transformational by any stretch of the imagination. And it's certainly not kind of seen as something which would pave the way for them to do bigger and more transformational deals. Okay, but if the strategy works and they get themselves a whole load more customers that they can sell their wealth management products to, maybe it'll pay off in the long term, even if it's seen as being quite expensive, I think. Let's move on to our third and final topic. And Nick, talking of wealth management, this is an area that Lloyds Bank is very keen to expand in. And you were writing the other day about them hiring 700 financial advisors in this space. Tell us what's going on. 
Yeah, so Lloyd's announced last year that they'd be working on a new financial planning and wealth management joint venture with Schroders, the asset management group. They said at the time they wanted to be kind of top three wealth manager in the UK within five years, but didn't really say what that means. We've been looking at some internal plans recently that suggest that the clearest measure of what they're aiming for is to take the initial 13 billion of assets under management that they're going to have when it launches and get that up to around 25 billion in five years. That is annual growth of about 14%. And the implication of it is that you can't do that all organically. It's going to take a lot more advisors to get you there. Some of that can come from training new people, but some of it is almost certainly going to come from poaching people from rivals and potentially buying up whole new businesses. Yeah, talking of M&A in the US, that's one area where we might see M&A in UK banking, I guess, because Lloyd has made no secret that it wants to build itself out, if you like. It's not going to be able to do any more core retail banking acquisitions. It's up to the threshold of market share it can get to. It can build out little bits of retail banking, like we've seen it do in credit cards, for example. But wealth management is a whole area where there's a lot of scope to expand. And there are potentially some acquisition targets that it might be able to go for. What do you see as the likelihood of any deals? Yeah, so as you say, in their core retail banking businesses, they're at 20%, 25% in some areas, and most of them, there's not much else they can do there. Whereas in wealth management, you're talking single figures of market share. Yeah. So there's a lot of scope from their point of view. They feel like there's a lot of space to grow. They're due to be announcing their four-year results next week. And there's expectations that there's going to be a big share buyback. And part of the reason for that is they have capital. And, you know, they buy back shares if they don't have a better way to use it. But it's acknowledging the fact that they have the money around and they can. And they've not been explicit about mentioning any particular targets yet. But they have acknowledged that they're on the lookout. Yes, well, we will keep a close eye on that over the coming months and we'll see what our next scoop will be on that. Thank you, Nick. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Laura and Rob and also Nick. Also our guest, Michael Hunsler. If you're not already an FT subscriber, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com slash offer. And remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you.